Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On today's show, we're joined by Joe Sheehan to recap the season, talk awards, and preview the offseason. But first, let's run through the winners of the 2021 Fielding Bible Awards as voted on by a panel of baseball experts that include Bill James, Peter Gammons, Eduardo Perez, Meg Rowley, and others. These awards are given to the best defensive player at each position. One position, one award, plus a special award for multi-position excellence. Cardinals players won five gold gloves. They won two Fielding Bible Awards. The first we'll announce goes to Paul Goldschmidt at first base. Paul Goldschmidt. Goldschmidt tied for the MLB lead in defensive runs saved at the position and headed a Cardinals infield that was best in baseball at turning ground balls into outs. It is Goldschmidt's fourth Fielding Bible Award. Albert Pujols has the most at first base, with five. Moving around the infield, but staying in the state of Missouri, Whit Merrifield of the Royals wins his first Fielding Bible Award at second base. Whit Merrifield. He ends a three-year run by Colton Wong. Merrifield had a career high in runs saved and leads all second basemen in good fielding plays. At shortstop, another first-time winner, Carlos Correa of the Astros. Carlos Correa. Easily the MLB leader in defensive runs saved there, he makes the great plays and avoids mistakes. He's the first Astros player to win at shortstop since Adam Everett in 2006. Cabrian Hayes of the Pirates ends the reign of Nolan Arenado and Matt Chapman at third base. They had won six straight Fielding Bible Awards. Cabrian Hayes. Hayes was as good as advertised. He led third baseman in runs saved, despite ranking 17th in innings played. To the outfield, and another Cardinal, Tyler O'Neill in left field. Tyler O'Neill. He wins for the second straight year. O'Neill improved upon his throwing numbers in 2021. That helped him lead the position in defensive runs saved. Another Royal wins in center field, Michael A. Taylor. Michael A. Taylor. A great race here. Taylor edged out Harrison Bader by one point in voting. He wins for the first time. Taylor led all center fielders in runs saved. He started strong and maintained the whole year. To right field, and a slight surprise here, Aaron Judge of the Yankees wins his first Fielding Bible Award. Aaron Judge. He had a good combination of range and throwing arm. He edges out his now teammate, Joey Gallo. At catcher, it's Jacob Stallings of the Pirates winning his first Fielding Bible Award. Jacob Stallings. Stallings crushed everyone at the position in run save this year. Ranked as the most effective catcher at blocking pitches and one of the best pitch framers. On the mound, Dallas Keuchel wins his fifth Fielding Bible Award, surpassing a former White Sox pitcher, Mark Burley. Dallas Keuchel. Keuchel led all pitchers in assists and runs saved. He was also great at limiting the running game. And for the second straight year, Kike Hernandez wins the award for multi-position excellence. Kike Hernandez. In 2020, Hernandez tied for the Major League lead in runs saved at second base. In 2021, he finished third in center field. He had no issue with the difficulties of Fenway Park. Again, recapping the winners in the infield, Paul Goldschmidt, Whit Merrifield, Carlos Correa, Cabrian Hayes. The outfield, Tyler O'Neill, Michael A. Taylor, and Aaron Judge. The battery, Dallas Keuchel and Jacob Stallings. And the multi-position award goes to Kike Hernandez. We congratulate all the 2021 Fielding Bible Award winners. 
I want to tell you about the Bill James Handbook 2022, available now from actasports.com and wherever you get your books. The handbook is 640 pages of baseball goodness, stats, leaderboards, essays, and more, reviewing the 2021 season, along with projections looking ahead to 2022. Bill's got a few new things on his mind. He developed a stat to measure the best hitter in the world, and another to ascertain the most versatile player. There's something fun and interesting to read on every page. Head on over to actasports.com or wherever you get your books to check it out. We moved to Joe Sheehan, and I was looking for someone that we could do a review preview with. Joe's perfect for that. You know him from many places, including the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe Sheehan wrote an article in the 2022 Bill James Handbook titled The Baseball Revolution. Hey, Joe. Hey, Mark. Good to be on. I want to start with the Fielding Bible Awards since I just read off the winners. You and I both vote. And I'm curious, just in terms of approach, when you watch defense these days, what are some of the things that you notice? I'd say the first thing I notice anymore are arms. I've mentioned to a few people that if you just sit and watch, like even between innings, the ease with which major league players throw the ball is to me almost the most impressive thing. They just casually throw these rockets across the diamond. And now with so many guys fielding balls away from their normal position, you've got third baseman or sometimes second baseman in short right field and you know, shortstop, second baseman playing up the middle. It's the ease with which they make these throws from all of these unnatural positions that I mostly notice because, you know, shifting has diminished the importance of lateral range broadly, but the arm is still the arm. And I think it's actually even more important. Like you say, when you talk about guys making these throws from all over the place. And it's, it's been something that certainly is very noticeable and it was noticeable in the postseason too. I think in terms of the, the range that Carlos Correa had on his arm was certainly very impressive. And that takes us to gold gloves, fielding Bible awards, You can find the ballots online for how we voted in the Fielding Bible Awards. I'm curious who would get your vote as the most valuable defensive player in each league, essentially your platinum glove winner. Well, value is playing time. I think the best defender in baseball right now is Byron Buxton. Yep, we're going to get to him. Incredible, we're going to get to him, I know. But of course, he didn't play enough to really you know, rack up the value. I think you look at another center fielder in the American League, Kevin Kiermaier. Certainly, we saw him show off in the last two postseasons. He's been fantastic. I think people that, that aren't familiar with him, because he's not a big hitter, because he plays in, in, in Tampa, maybe casual fans aren't as familiar. But in the postseason, we've got to see him show off what kind of our stat heads have known for a while, that he's a superior defender in center, too. So I'd probably go with Kiermaier. Nice. Okay. I'm going to go with Carlos Correa. Just mentioned mm-hmm. him a second ago. Led all shortstops in defensive runs saved by a, by a considerable amount. Was among the, the top players' defensive runs saved, period. Won the gold glove, won the Fielded Bible Award. The thing that's particularly impressive about him is he maximizes his number of really good plays. And at the same time, he's also able, able to minimize his number of mistakes, which is a rarity in this day and age. Even if you look at a guy like Nolan Arenado, Matt Chapman at third base. You look at some of the other shortstops that Correa gets compared to, their ratio of great to bad is usually like kind of one to one. And Carlos Correa tends to have a ratio that's up two to three to one. National League, I would vote, by the way, for someone that you didn't particularly vote for strongly in the Fielding Bible Awards. I would vote Ryan McMahon, who didn't win a gold glove, but who played a terrific third base this year for the Rockies, played a terrific second base this year for the Rockies, got unnoticed because the Rockies were so terrible. We had him on the podcast earlier this year, so I'm slightly biased, uh, but he had a fantastic season. And I want to go back to Buxton because you said that you that the best defensive 
defensive player in baseball is Byron Buxton. You voted Byron Buxton as the number one center fielder in the Fielding Bible Awards, and I thought that was great. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I had him third on my ballot. He only played 61 games. You voted him number one, and that takes us to kind of looking at the other MLB awards, and it really is a shame this year because you had three potential MVPs, and I guess four if you want to include Jacob deGrom in that. Buxton, Trout, Acuna, and deGrom all get hurt significantly and all miss a considerable amount of playing time. But Buxton to me is the most interesting because it seems like he's always hurt. And this year he was freaking great. Uh, do you believe in Byron Buxton in 2022? It's funny you use the phrase believe in him because it's like, you know, like a mythical creature. Does he actually <laughs> exist? And yeah, I can touch the, fl- the flesh and blood uh, Byron Buxton, but if I do, he'll get hurt. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, he has shown just a, such a broad set of skills in his time in the, in the majors. I mean, even, you know, even at times he's walked, he's never been, you know, Frank Thomas or anything, but even at times he's shown enough play discipline that you figure he can get to his game power, that he's going to be able to run a decent on base percentage. You know, this year he had a 1000 OPS, everything he hit, he hit hard. What was it? 40 extra base hits in 61 games. That's insane. That's just a ridiculous number. And even though he's 27, he's still, like I say, you know, probably the best defensive player in baseball. Now he'll eventually start, the, the raw skills will eventually go away. They'll start to diminish. And I would just hope that we get one season, 140 game season with him, with these developed hitting skills, while he's still a superior center fielder, while he's still a high percentage base sealer, just kind of put it all together and see what it, what it can be. You know, we saw Otani this year, right? He hit, he pitched, he was like the the dream Otani. I would like to see one year of, you know, Manic, Pixie, Byron Buxton. Twins were 29 and 30 when he started this year, and they were, quite frankly, dreadful for the most part when he didn't. And that's been true for him throughout his career in terms of uh, those numbers. If he had played 140 games, he would have potentially been a 10-war player, which is really uh, kind of ridiculous. And he might have uh, challenged for AL MVP. In fact, he definitely would have challenged for AL MVP. Who you got for your MVPs, AL and NL? Ale was uh, Otani, obviously, and yep. you, know, you can make arguments for other guys, but he was one of the best hitters in the league and one of the best pitchers in the league. And we've never said those things before. You know, the, I've never never said I'm like, people think I'm a hundred and something years old, but I, I didn't get to watch Babe Ruth. <laughs> you didn't see Babe Ruth. You I didn't did not see, see Babe Ruth. You didn't uh, see any of the nineteenth century guys. You, you know what? They were blacked out, so I didn't <laughs> I didn't get a chance to actually watch them. Much. And then over in the National League, you know, give me. And by the way, I should mention, I, I, Byron Buxton was like 15th on my, in 61 games. I had yep. to mention him in my MVP, MVP column. He was that good. And then in the NL, yeah, you mentioned it, right? DeGrom hurt, Acuna hurt. And, you know, Fernando Tatis only 130 games. But in 130 games, he played well enough to be the MVP. Mark, I have a, a bit of a bias. I don't go straight war. I mean, I'm never going to do that. But even beyond like the positional adjustments that we would normally make in, in these things, I have a bias towards up-the-middle players, catchers, second base, shortstop, center field. And that is what pushed me to go with Tatis over my next two guys, over Harper and Soto, who I believe are the, uh, the top three in uh, the actual voting. And I actually had Trey Turner and Zach Wheeler ahead of those guys as well. I, I'll always take the guy who has the up-the-middle defensive value over the corner player. That's interesting. I, I feel like it's really a toss up there. I felt like if Harper wins it, I wouldn't like be upset. If Soto wins it, I wouldn't be upset. If and any of the, the, the three guys, the, uh, Tatis being the third, uh, if any of those guys win it, don't particularly feel like super strongly. But I do think the NL side, which I want to segue to, is, is kind of intriguing because it's a question of, I, I think it becomes a question of 
dominance in a shorter span versus more innings in an era in which innings don't often get pitched at the bulk level that Zach Wheeler did. And I'm curious for your take on the National League Cy Young before we go to the AL. Yeah, I I feel bad in the way I landed in that it's not Corbin Burns' fault the way he was used. The Brewers really kept to a fairly strict five-man rotation. So Burns made at least 27 or 28 starts. He only threw 167 innings. Rob Maines at Baseball Prospectus has done a really good work about looking at how we've even moved away from a five-day rotation to a five-man rotation. And this year's Brewers are really a great example of that. So it's not entirely Corbin Burns' fault, but Zach Wheeler threw over 200 innings. It's, you know, and when you have an extra 33, 34, whatever it has been, 35 innings, at the level of performance that Wheeler pitched at, he ends up being my, my Cy Young Award winner. You know, maybe this was a weird year. And maybe we'll get back to 200 inning starters in 2022. But when so few pitchers provide that kind of volume, and, and Wheeler, of course, was also a very good pitcher when he pitched, that's the edge for him over Burns for me. And I, I want to I circle back to something you said. I try not to get upset about these anymore. I don't participate in arguments in August and September anymore. I do my ballot at the end of the season. And if you feel like it should be Burns or you feel like it should be Vlad or you should feel like it should be whoever – Good, good for you. I, yeah. I'm happy for you. I just, I've really, I mean, I was in the middle of all the Trout Cabrera arguments or, you know, in the 2010s and you go back further to, you know, Justin Morneau and, and some of the bad votes that we had, certainly the ones we had in the, in the 1980s. I'm still talking about how Dave Steve got screwed over four times in five years, <laughs> but I, now I just, you know, whatever, whoever wins, I think we have, we have tools now that enable us to look at players in the context of which they played, where we're not as reliant on looking at the MVP and the Cy Young Award voting to get players' careers right 20, 30 years down the line. We also do have a more sophisticated electorate. And I do find it fascinating because it's a 45-ish inning difference from Wheeler to Burns. And that 1.63 FIP is so, so tempting to, to vote for. I don't, I, like you said, if you go one way, great. If you go the other way, great. Today, I'd probably wake up and say Burns. Tomorrow, I might wake up and say Wheeler. I don't know that there's that much of a difference. Whereas in the AL, are you a, are you a Robbie Ray guy? Is, is, is that where it is for you? I went with Ray. This is a case where I really do value real runs in a, in a Cy Young argument. If you're asking me who's going to be better next year, I'll look at FIP and, and some of the ERA estimators. But for award voting, I really do prefer to kind of stay in a real runs environment. So mm-hmm. Ray kept more runs off the board. Cole prop might have been the better pitcher in an abstract way. But I think, and again, this is another area where I think we're down to two guys. And if you go Ray over Cole, Cole over Ray, I can't argue too much. We had this argument, I think, two years ago when it was Verlander and Cole. And it was a similar thing where I think Verlander had the real runs edge and Cole looked better if you look through the ERA estimators. Yeah, for the second time in three years, I think I have Cole as the number two guy in a close race behind Ray. I think it's pretty cool that Robbie Ray is going to win, given where he was, uh, mm-hmm. well, just quite frankly, last year, when he had a 6.62 ERA at a time where people were like, oh, this guy could potentially be the next really, really good thing. Sometimes you just have to wait a year. And that's what happened for Robbie Ray. He made it work in Toronto. If you're Robbie Ray, you know, you do it. Well, if he'd done it last year, he could have done it. It was his walk year right, last year. Yep. Anyway. But you always, you always want to have this year as your as your platform year. Don't have it when you're a five-plus guy and you've got to go to arbitration and then maybe you have the bad year. So good for Robbie Ray. Go get paid. With that, I'm skipping one question here. Are, are we right to be a little skittish, though, on him going forward? Or do you feel confident that he's going to be worth the, the five-year deal or whatever it is that he winds up getting? I'm always skittish when you've got this thin a track record. I mean, he's going to win yep. the Cy Award, with it, but it's literally two good years in his career. 
He has two years where he's been better than a two-war pitcher, 2017 and 2021. Yep. So I look at investing, you know, four and 100 or five and 125, whatever it's going to be. I'd be a little nervous about that. And the one thing, and I've been thinking about Ray a lot this week, man, Mark, I'm going to use a name here that might not immediately click because they're kind of physical, physically different. But at the exact same age that Ray had his breakout, Cliff Lee did the exact same thing. If you look, they were 29. All of a sudden, they both decided, hey, if I throw strikes, I can be good. And it was the exact same thing. Lee ended up winning the Cy Young Award, eventually got traded to the Phillies, made a bunch of money. Exact same age, pretty much the exact same career. Lee had been more consistent without having a year like Ray's 2017. But they both absolutely blew up at the age of 20, whatever Ray, whatever they were last year, 29, yep. uh, 28 or 29. And it's it just the pattern to me really just makes me go, mm, if this is real, we've seen it. And we used to talk. I mean, we're older baseball fans, and I don't think they, they talk about this too much. You think about, oh, lefties take a long time to develop. And there are examples throughout baseball history. I, you know, Koufax was a little bit moving to Los Angeles more than he, he developed, but he also moved to a great pitcher's environment. Randy Johnson was somebody that you know broke out in his late 20s. This used to be a thing, the late developing lefty. And Ray could fit into that archetype. Now let's go from size to rookies. Who are your rookie of the year picks? I went with Wander Franco in the AL. And I think you could make the case for either Garcia or Randy or Rosarina. I just, Franco, again, he wasn't, how much he played wasn't under his control. I think if he was good enough to be in the major leagues on opening day, the Rays made their choices with their personnel. They didn't call him up until June. But from the moment he was called up, he was the best rookie in baseball. He was one of the best players in baseball for the last two months of the season. So I went with Franco over the two Garcias. So what's his like, what's his next year projection kind of thing? I'm pick, he's going to be my pick for AL MVP. Wow. Okay. I think, I think when you have that level of plate discipline, that luck, that kind of power, he's like, he's going to stay. The one thing that's that I wasn't sure of, before I got to see him a lot this year was what would he stay at shortstop? Remember, you know, there was even a question. The Rays went with Taylor Walls at midseason. Yep. Taylor Walls is a plus plus defensive uh, shortstop. There was a question, you know, would eventually would Franco be the third baseman next to him? And Walls didn't hit, and Franco took over at shortstop. And you know, he's going to he's a little like Tatis in that there's going to be some errors mixed in there, but he has all the skills to stay at shortstop. He's got an incredible arm. Uh, the instincts are right. I think he's going to be one of the 15 best hitters in the league and play a plus shortstop next year. And that to me is, is going to be the MVP. Maybe I mean, there's a bunch of guys in the AL right now, obviously. You know, there's an outfielder for the angels that's completely forgotten about. <laughs> and Vlad. Yeah. yeah. And Vlad. I mean, there's going to be a lot. I mean, we've yep. talked about the same guys every year, but I'm, I'm telling you right now, Juan Franco is going to be my pick for AL MVP next year. I like that. We go bold. All right. Uh, nationally, who you got? Yeah, I got some pushback on this. I went with Trevor Rogers over Jonathan India. I think there's a, a pretty good case for either guy. I was, just, I think, I was just overly impressed by Rogers in the first half. I didn't ding him. He took about a month off. His, I want to say, both his parents actually uh, had COVID, so he took a month off to to take care of them. And I basically didn't penalize him for that at all. So I gave it to Rogers over over to uh, Jonathan India. I believe my preseason pick was Dylan Carlson, so it was hard to not go with him. But he was clearly third behind the other two. Um, you know, Reds fans real. That was there was the one pick when I published it. I got a lot of pushback on because India's numbers are probably better than Rogers. I just essentially imputed you know four good starts for Rogers because I mean you take time off to take care of your parents. I just I can't ding you for that. No, that's fair. Jonathan India was a four war player this past season. I think that's where I was leaning. I'm I'm 
I guess I would say I'm mostly supportive of what you say. The difference between the two was like half a win, which he would have made up if he had pitched the other four or five starts. Also, they might not want to necessarily have pushed him to a high number of innings, but in 133, he was very, very good. As far as 2021 goes, just to put one more wrap on it. Uh, how do we remember the 2021 Braves, uh, say, in 2041? I think we got to see where it goes from here, right? Do Presumably, they'll sign Freeman. Do they back it up with more success? I don't think there'll be a total island championship. Only be, like I think about teams like the 2002 Angels or the 2005 White Sox that won a championship but didn't really have any success on either side of it. These island years where just everything worked out. I mean, the Braves have won the division four years running. I think they'll be the favorite next year. I mean, uh, I I don't see anybody else in that division getting it together. Although, I'll be honest with you, Mark, we just talked about Rodgers. I I look at that Marlins team, and I get excited about that rotation every time I look at it. So, you know, maybe they make a run. But I think the Braves will continue to have success, and that will make them seem like a team that had got got a championship in the middle of a run. You look at the 2008 Phillies. Only one championship, but there were not a lot of good teams around it. I think that's that's a good example. Maybe, you know, I'm trying to think of other teams. Like the 2009 Yankees are another example. Separated from the dynasty years, a good teams all around it won their championship. So I think that's what we'll look at. If they get a second you know, win, you start to look at them differently. But likely as not, they'll be the pinnacle of a eight-year run where the Braves were very good. So that's certainly very cool for them. Losing Game 7 LCS last year winning the World Series this mm-hmm. year. And you mentioned the Marlins, just this kind of, I don't want to go into labor, but because you can't really say very much about it. There's a ticking clock. We all know that. The offer that we're going to wind up seeing implemented is probably five offers away at this point, if not more. But how the Marlins approach the offseason, I think is certainly determined by what the labor agreement looks like, uh, just based on their history of spending in the past. So that's something to, to keep an eye on. Looking at free agents, and looking at players that we should be excited about. And I'm thinking like the guys that are the, we, we can talk ad nauseum about the guys that are the top tier guys, Corey Seager, Robbie Ray, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm curious about the guys that are in that 11 to 20 range on these free agent lists, Keith Law, Ben Clemens, MLB trade rumors. Once you get past Marcus Stroman and Robbie Ray, once you get past Correa and Seager shortstop, uh, is there someone that particularly excites you? Well. I'm not sure Ray is going to be the best left-handed starter in this group. And that's because of how excited I am about Eduardo Rodriguez. Talk about a guy with a great backstory in this 2020 because of my uh, COVID induced myocarditis came back this year, uh, was babied a little bit at the start of the year because of that went on to have a strong year that was hidden by the fact that the Red Sox defense was terrible. Uh, Rodriguez had, I believe a four, seven, four ERA, but if you look at his FIP, it was 3.32. It was one of the largest gaps in baseball. And that doesn't always mean the player is going to regress to the lower number. But Rodriguez is somebody who's pitched at the level of a 3-5 guy for most of his career. He's got more good years than Ray has had. He's been more consistent at the level of a number two slash number three starter. And frankly, I think he hasn't tapped. I think he's got a big year in him. So I look at you know Ray, 4-100, 5-125, whatever Rodriguez gets, and it'll probably be because we talked about platform years. The platform year usually determines your your offers. But if you bring in Rodriguez on, you know, 354, 472, something like that, I think you're going to get the better deal for sure. And I think you might even just get the flat out better pitcher. I, I love uh, uh, Eduardo Rodriguez for any team in this pitching market. 
I think what will be cool is when you put your 2022 predictions out, if you go Wander Franco for MVP and Eduardo Rodriguez for Cy Young. That's probably an overbit, but I mean, you could see a jump if he gets, if he were to sign with the Cardinals. Right. He fits in well with like the kind of the sleeper side, like the guy who never got a vote before, but then gets a vote that year. You could certainly see that. But but he doesn't pitch a whole lot better. He just gets into a much better situation. Like all of a sudden he gets great defensive support and a bunch of run support. And now he's 19 and four with a 2.93 ERA. Right. And that's what happens if he goes to the Cardinals and gets the support that Adam Wainwright got. I'm, I'm not convinced that Adam Wainwright wasn't like a Adam Wainwright was a three ERA pitcher in kind of a four ERA performance group. So what teams are you interested in keeping an eye on this uh, offseason? Because there's a whole bunch that I think could, could make some movement. Yeah, I had trouble narrowing this down. I mean, you've got, you know, what are the A's going to do? Like, you know, what are they actually going to a full teardown? The Reds similarly from the negative side, but from a positive side, you mentioned the Marlins. And man, if they just go out and buy some hitters and maybe get like one veteran starter, I mentioned in the, during the postseason, Granky landing there. Our friend Will Carroll has talked to me about maybe Verlander uh, landing there. If they get that one kind of anchor guy, not a, he's not a number one at this point in his career, but somebody who at least is going to give you 30, 28, 30 starts to go with all of that young pitching, that's exciting. I think the Padres are interesting again. You know, they've already made the, what might be the best move of the, po- of the offseason in signing uh, Bob Melvin away from the A's. That's a very big upgrade in the dugout for them. Um, they've got to do a better job of keeping all their pitching healthy, but you know their baseline talent level is going to be the same. They bring back essentially everybody from this 2021 team that we were all excited about six months ago. Uh, I think they're fascinating. I think the Giants, you know, they lose so much talent now, of course, with Buster Posey retiring as well. I mean, they're what, how are they going to replace it? Are they going to spend a lot of money? Or are they going to say, hey, look, we have the ability to make players better. So are they going to continue to kind of look around minor league free agency, second and third tier free agents, and not spend a ton of money and just say, our system is now how we're going to succeed. So, I mean, I could probably do this for 30 teams, but I mean, those are the ones that really jump out at me as, you know, ones to look at. And it's one of the reasons, you know, we had such a strange season in 2020, and it was a kind of a strange off season in a lot of ways because of that. I'm hopeful. I wouldn't say optimistic. I'm hopeful that we can get the deal done to see what this offseason could be, because I think it is fascinating in a lot of ways. Speaking of San Francisco, remember that I think it's important to remember that they were this close to getting Bryce Harper a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. They have the money if they want to go splash, you know, huge numbers on someone. Once you get they don't need a shortstop at this point, but they have the money to do considerable things. And this, maybe not necessarily just one. Or they have the ability to build the platoons, find the Alex Dickerson, Darren Ruff combinations that work for them. So there's a lot of flexibility there. The other team that you didn't mention has already done something. The Tigers got Tucker Barnhart from the Reds, and they've made it clear, perhaps a little ahead of schedule, that they're in go for it mode two which I'm curious to see how they will approach that because I think there are good ways to approach that and potentially bad ways to approach that. But I think that they're one of the more fascinating teams of the offseason as well. Yeah, making all those young starters throw to Wilson Ramos was kind of mean. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Bar- Barnard, obviously a big upgrade there. I will see, you know, we haven't seen Chris Illich spend a lot of money. Yep. So the noises that they're making are fine, but I definitely want to see some moves before I buy it. You make a great point about the the Giants. I mean, they're, they're a, a high-revenue team that Park just prints money. They've got a good cable deal. And they have a ton of money coming off the payroll. 
Um, they don't have to pick up Posey's $22 million. Cueto comes yep. off the payroll. Yep. They didn't extend Crawford, but they're in the, the entire pitching staff comes off the payroll, really. So they they and this is the thing you do, right? And we've seen this with all of the successful teams in recent years. You through your farm system, through your player improvement processes, the Dodgers with Taylor and Muncie, the Yankees with Voigt and Urshela, guys like that. You do that so that you lock in a lot of low, uh, low-cost talent producing at a high level so that you can then spend $30 million on Carlos Correa. You've got to do both sides of it, right? You've got to yep. have the cheap talent core, and then you've got to go out and spend the money. But that's, that's the part we're going to – and, you know, as I say, you know, Charles Johnson – how Charles Johnson spends his money in some strange ways, which probably outside the scope of this thing. But, I mean, yes. he, has, he, has, he has put money into the baseball team. So that's what makes them, you know, fascinating this winter. I'm – like I say, I'm I'm excited for this offseason. I hope we get to see what it could be. Exactly. Let's go rapid fire on the Hall of Fame. Just a couple of thoughts here because the Hall of Fame has been pertinent. The ballots are coming out for, for this, this particular season where there's intrigue with, with someone like David Ortiz. But uh, first of all, is Buster Posey an easy uh, yes call at this point? I don't want to be prisoner of the moment. It is an yep. incredibly short career. Yep. Uh, even for a catcher, it's an incredibly short career. Um, yep. I do think that we don't emphasize postseason enough since 1995 in all in Hall of Fame voting. It used to be, well, you know, you can't blame guys for not getting in. But now we only judge teams based on how they do in the postseason. We don't respect division titles. We don't respect regular season performances. So Buster Posey being the catcher for three world champions in five years, I think is probably going to be what pushes me over in the end. But, you know, in five years from now, we're actually looking at his numbers. It's going to look like a really short career. Yes. And I want to talk about the five-year perception thing. And in a lot of cases, it becomes the 10-year perception thing because you look at a guy and someone like now, Tim Hudson and Mark Burley, who are down-ballot guys who are getting 5% to 9% of the Hall of Fame vote, they look a little different after you watch a World Series in which a broadcaster classifies four innings, one run as a great start. (laughs) And I just think that it's fascinating that you're going to have Verlander and Scherzer get to 3,000 innings, and nobody's going to get to 3,000 innings after that. It's not going to happen. And you have, uh, I don't want to talk about Ortiz and Bonds and Clemens. That's tiring. I find it fascinating, though. And you can, we can put Andy Pettit in this, even though there's a PED aspect to him. Pettit, Hudson, Burley, I think look really interesting now. Like they are seventh and eighth years on the ballot. They might not get in, but they might get up to like 40% of the vote because I think people are going to be wowed by what they've done and, and what they did, especially in today's context. I don't know. I mean, well, I, I want to pull Pettit out of that group only because, yep. again, the postseason work. Sure. I, I think that the, the, the volume of his postseason work separates him from a lot of his peers. But it's like I remember when I was mumble mumble years ago there were three guys who were on the ballot every year that just went nowhere. Tommy John, yep. Luis Tiant, and uh, Jim Cott. And they <laughs> sure. were all Hall of Very Good types, yep. but they never really advanced. And that's where I think you're talking, you're talking about that second tier of starters below the Hall of Fame level, the Hall of Very Good. There was a great book that came out about 10 years ago. Yes. Are these guys. And so I don't think I, I would relook at these. Yeah, players. they're not, they're not going to get 200 votes, but they no. might get 75 to 100. Yeah, I mean, they, they hang around the ballot. I will say that in, in all of these cases, it's an argument against the 5% rule. Let's have the conversation. Yes, that's, I is, think I, that's important. I've been screaming about this for a while now because during the ballot backlog, which you know had a lot of, uh, there were a lot of reasons for it, but there were a lot of players who fell off 
and who never got conversations developed. Kenny Lofton's a full, fully qualified Hall of Famer. He was on one ballot. Jim Edmonds, Bernie Williams. You go back earlier, Bobby Gritch never really got enough for a conversation. I want to say Ted Simmons, who just got in last year on the Veterans Committee. I think he was one and done on the ballot or maybe two and done. I think the 5% rule has done an incredible amount of damage to the process, causing cases to not be able to generate momentum. I, I've, I've recommended a sliding scale where it's like one vote, five votes, and then a 5% rule in your last year. If, if you can't get to 5% in three years, fine, then, then, yep. then you shouldn't be on. I mean, there's got to be a, a, a beans for taking guys who are not Hall of Famers off the ballot. But right. we've lost. I mean, we're now in a process where we're debating the merits of players who their, their children are dead this year. But we don't have a means for talking about Kenny Lofton. That, that, that bothers me. Amazingly, this is two episodes in a row where Kenny Lofton for the Hall of Fame has been pitched. So uh, you and Matt Amodio, Jeopardy champ, certainly very appreciative of his skill sets. The, the 5% rule, okay, I, I, we, can dimin- we can get rid of that. We can also maybe get rid of the 162 inning rule for qualifying for the ERA title while we're at it. Completely different I, subject. I don't know. I mean, do you really want to encourage this process? Or <laughs> I, I think there's no turning back. I think there has to be. Whether, you know, I've been saying for years, you know, we need to cap the number of pitchers on a roster, on a daily roster, and find ways to encourage teams to start valuing something more than just max effort over 15 pitches. I think these are things that baseball is finally coming to. And whether we get rule changes this year or next or the year after that, that's got to happen. Because I I guess what I want to say is I don't want to make rules that make it easier for baseball to not address the real issue. Lowering the qualification for the ERA title doesn't address the real issue, which is pitcher usage. Yeah, I don't know that we're ever going back to, to the days that you want them to go back to. Sticking with the Hall of Fame, where are Freddie Freeman, Paul Goldschmidt, and Zach Greinke for you? He, uh, well, Greinke's in. Greinke's in? Okay. Greinke's in for me. And again, it's part because what you're talking about here. You know, we've, uh, we've got to adjust for the fact that pitchers don't pitch as much as they used to. Greinke, to me, is a better example than some of the guys you mentioned. I was shocked in prepping for this podcast at how, how close Paul Goldschmidt is to the Hall of Fame. I didn't realize he reached 50 war this year. I had no idea because he got the late start. You know, he wasn't a highly regarded prospect. And then he just basically showed up and been good every year. I love careers like this. I mentioned Pettit earlier. Pettit never was below average. He was at least average in every year of his career. And Goldschmidt's been above average every year of his career. I love careers like this. Freeman is close to it. I think he had like one year where he was like a 97 or a 98 OPS plus. But yeah, Goldschmidt's interesting. He's still be 34 this year. Probably needs, if you look at the the war, just, just using raw war here at baseball reference, like 65 tends to be the number where you start to get your case taken seriously by the BBWAA. Maybe that number changes, but Goldschmidt's also got the issue of doesn't have 300 homers yet, doesn't even have 1600 hits yet. For batting positions, you know, we can talk about war all we want, but you really do need to get you know, close to 400 home runs. You need to get to 22, 2300 hits. He's probably not going to hit 300. I mean, these things do matter in the Hall of Fame case. So I, I don't think it's the Hall of War yet. I think we're still at least a generation of voters away from making it the Hall of War. So just saying he gets the 65 war doesn't get it done for me. He needs a couple more good years, though. Okay. Is there anyone on the old timers ballot that you're particularly pulling for? Do you have one guy that you really like? Yeah, this is going to make people mad. I think the entire Veterans Committee should be abolished. <laughs> I, 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 I was afraid you were going to, I was thinking you were going to say, well, Bill Dolan. No, I, I don't. I, I, I basically feel like everybody who's currently being picked over by the Veterans Committee has been picked over by 
original voting and veterans committee after veterans committee after veterans committee. I just think that we should close the door at around 1969. And I think I proposed once that if you, there was like a birth date, it was like 1947 or so, and nobody born after that date. I'd probably push it up now, but fundamentally, Mark, I just, we're picking over these eras of baseball history that are already wildly overrepresented while Kenny Lofton isn't in the hall of fame. I, I think we we're, we've got this entirely backwards. We need to be focused on, you know, the 1980s and 90s, the guys who were the errors that are underrepresented in the Hall of Fame, as opposed to going back. And you know, when you're inviting the person's great grandchildren to, to take the, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious about this. So you, you're right. You're not, I get it. you're not advancing baseball. So I think from a fairness standpoint, from a keeping the Hall of Fame relevant standpoint, I think when, there was the year they put in, I, I'm going to forget who this was, but I called him the Rick Lavalier, excuse me, the Mike Lavalier of the reconstruction. Deacon White. It was Deacon White. And I'm like, why are we, what, what is being gained by putting Deacon White in the Hall of Fame? So no, I would, I would seriously get rid of the entire Veterans Committee structure and I would focus on modern players. Wow. I, I like that. I wasn't expecting that. By the way, in the Bill James handbook, I should note that uh, you and I, Simpatico, I think I wrote an essay in which the first words were, boy, I couldn't believe how close Paul Goldschmidt is to the Hall of Fame. From grades of the game to yawns of the game, 99 games average three hours, 10 minutes this year. That's up 10 minutes from 2018, 15 minutes from 2012. But more than that, the pace of games was frustrating. And I realized that we're never going back to the days when my dad could watch the Mets and then be done in time for Hill Street Blues or Cagney and Lacey. What can we do to make uh, baseball a better watch? How did your dad have an appetite for anything after watching the Mets? Well, come on, mid-80s, early, oh, early yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. you know, 1984, 1985, isn't Hill Street Blues a show then? I was thinking 82, 83, but you're right. Yeah. They, they, both of those shows stretched into the, the, the strawberry good. I believe so. All right. Now I, I, I was a pitch. I was never a pitch clock guy. I'm very much a, there's no clock in baseball and I've given up. I at least want to see what it looks like. I don't think you'll get, I think one of the problems with a pitch clock is that there's going to be a lot of exceptions if you put one in at the major league level. But at this point, I think we've got to do something to push the, I, I actually half jokingly suggested that we need a pitch clock, but only for relievers. Because relievers are where a lot of the a little problem lay. You know, we've got these max effort relievers who take 30, 35 seconds between pitches, deep breath, and get their, you know, and then they throw a max effort fastball, and then they take 30, 35 seconds, and makes the ends of games such a drag. But at this point, I'll, I'll take a pitch clock and see what it looks like. I, I think the natural length of a baseball game now is three hours. Everybody just is bigger and stronger, and it takes a little bit longer to do all the things that they do. But let's put them on a clock so that the average game is in 315. I'll also make the point that, speaking of, you know, this is going to be a hot take. I think before the end of the century, Major League Baseball games will be seven innings long. Ooh. Well, you and I might not love to see it, but that's, that's where we're <laughs> Don't think of it as taking out the ninth, eighth and ninth inning. If you think of it as taking out the fourth and the fifth. Yep. I get what you're saying. Of, it solves a lot of baseball's problems. I totally get it. I, I probably disagree with it, but I totally get it. And with that, let's wrap up here and let's close on your article in the Bill James Handbook. You said that the baseball revolution is upon us. Seven inning games would certainly qualify for that. <laughs> you said you were pointing to 1919, 1946, and 1975 as the other three instances in the modern era. Give us an ideal, realistic, world, real world scenario. And don't just say, oh, they're playing. Uh, for what baseball looks like in 2022, 16-team playoffs and all. Oh, see, you got to start me with that. It's going to make me mad. I think that if they could keep the current playoff structure, that's as far as I'd want to go. 12 is 40% of the league. I'd like to see a shorter regular season schedule in part to have a smaller overlap with the NFL. I'd like to see the season end earlier because, 
you know, we've gotten lucky in recent years, but we're eventually going to get a Cubs Red Sox World Series a game a series again. And that that's really hard to play at night in Boston and Chicago in November. I'd like to see more of a freedom of movement for players, more competition among the teams. And there are various ways to get there. I'd like to see them discard the the pandemic rules. And I'm afraid we're not going to get that. I think we'll go back to nine inning double headers, but I think some form of the extra inning rule is still going to be with us. And I really, really don't like that. But yeah, I mean, just get back to competition. And it's hard because teams don't have to compete to make money anymore. If you want to distill baseball now to its biggest single problem, it's that it's so successful that the teams don't need to win to make money. And I don't know that there's a great fix for that, short of you know significant externalities that, frankly, it's going to be hard to get the owners to agree with. But you know, I, I nobody's making me commissioner yet. And of course, you know, the, the commissioners always represented the owners, right? The idea of a commissioner representing the fans has always been a bit of a myth. But if we could just push the game towards more competition, placing, chasing wins at the center of it in a way that hasn't really been the case because of the game's success, I think that's the single biggest problem you got to fix. Yeah, let's get there. It's going to, it's, uh, I think they're pushing a rock up a hill at the moment. Mm-hmm. But hopefully they will uh, get to flat ground. Sooner rather than later. Joe Sheehan, let's plug the baseball, your baseball newsletter. Tell people where they can find it. JoeSheehan.com. I've been writing a subscription newsletter since, well, nobody was. But now everybody, literally everybody has a subscription newsletter. Ask your mom. She's got a subscription newsletter. <laughs> She's surprised she hasn't pitched it to you yet. But yeah, I just, I love writing about baseball. I did a baseball prospectus for 15 years and now I've been doing the newsletter for 12. So I haven't basically had a real job in a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I was going to say it's it's excellent. It's highly thought provoking. It's insightful. He's always on the, the most important topics of the day, hour, minute. I highly recommend it, as does our owner, our chairman, uh, John Dewan. Thanks. I, that's great endorsements from you guys. I, I love what you guys do at SIS. And I'm eagerly, as I talk to you, waiting for the appearance of the handbook, which is always a highlight of my, my offseason. Nice. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.